things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to ask a question to begin this morning. What is it that makes great stories? That's rhetorical. What is it that makes a story great? You know, there's a lot of answers to that question that I think would be helpful. But I believe that um, one theme that makes stories great stories is when the story demonstrates that self-sacrifice is the essence of love. When a story can demonstrate that self-sacrifice is the essence of love, it's revealing something that's true about our world, and therefore, depending on the skill of the teller of the story, can be considered great. Now, there's a many, many examples that I could give about that, but let's, let's take one very well-known story, especially in our culture among younger people, for example. Let's just take Harry Potter, okay? Harry Potter, I think, is a great story. I love those books. And uh, remember Lily Potter, Harry's mother. In the first book of the Harry Potter series, you know, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but Voldemort can't touch him. And when Voldemort tries to lay hands on Harry, he experiences this agonizing pain, and so he's thwarted. And Harry is left with just this lightning-shaped scar on his forehead as a result of that encounter with Lord Voldemort when he was a very little baby. And later on in the series, when Harry's grown up and he's going to Hogwarts school, he asks his mentor, Professor, Professor Dumbledore, why couldn't Voldemort touch me? And here's what Dumbledore says in reply. He says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. To have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Now, why is it that that encounter that Harry has with Dumbledore is so moving to so many of us? Well, it's because we know from experience and from most great stories that sacrifice, giving yourself for the good of another, is at the heart of real love. Lily Potter's, Harry's mom's, sacrifice of herself for her son Harry reflects something that is true and that is beautiful about the world, that self-sacrifice is the essence of love. And really, that's what our story today in the Gospel of Mark is all about. As I mentioned earlier, we're picking up Mark again this week, and we're going to work through the rest of these chapters and finish up on Easter. And right now, just reorienting ourselves to where we are, Jesus is on the way to the city of Jerusalem where he's going to die. And he's taking his 12 disciples with him. And this journey began back in chapter 8, right after the transfiguration. And Jesus has been explaining, he's explained two times at this point, that he's going to die in Jerusalem. And his disciples don't get it at all. And the interaction in these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, has centered around the words of Jesus about his future and the blindness of the disciples and their lack of understanding. And now for the first time, Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples that he is going to die. But here in our story, he begins to tell his disciples why. Why he is going to die or what the purpose of his death is. And so this is justly one of the most famous passages in all of Mark's gospel. It's a very, very important part of Holy Scripture. And I would ask you to give it your attention this morning, whether you're coming from a place of doubt or from a place of faith. But let me try and sum up the whole idea of Mark chapter 10, 32 through 45 like this. Here's the main idea. Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people by sacrificing himself for us. Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people by sacrificing himself for us. All I want to do is break that statement up into three sections, and those will make up our three parts today. First, Jesus came to die. Second, Jesus came to die for selfish people 
by, or to, in order to rescue selfish people. And third, Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people by sacrificing himself for us. Okay, so let's look at what the scripture itself says. We see first, beginning in verse 32, that Jesus came to die. As the disciples and their leader are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking ahead of them, Mark tells us there in verse 32. And if you can visualize this, imagine Jesus walking ahead with this look of sheer determination and fortitude on his face. Mark tells us that they were amazed there in verse 32, but we're not even sure what they're amazed at, right? There's no reference to that verb. The idea is that they're just sort of stunned and amazed at how determined and how persistent and how definitively Jesus is moving forward towards Jerusalem. You know, it's sort of like if you've ever watched a boxing match, when you watch the boxer first enter the arena on the way into the ring, you know, everybody starts cheering or everybody starts booing and he's got his trainers and his posse, you know, around him or her, I guess, at this point in our world. And, uh, and he's oftentimes the boxer is just a picture of determination. It's like he doesn't hear or see anything that's going on around him. He is completely laser focused on what faces him in the ring. That's exactly what Jesus is like as he is leading his 12 disciples south down the road towards Jerusalem. And the disciples are amazed. The disciples, Mark says, are afraid. And so Jesus stops, we read, and he takes his 12 disciples again aside and he tells them what happens to them. Now, this is the th- what's going to happen to him. Now, this is the third time in just a brief few days that Jesus had told them this. And look what he says there in 33 and 34. It's very clear, isn't it? And he goes into more detail here than he has in either of the prior moments where he's told them about his death. He says, I'm going, son of man, that's him. He's going to be delivered over to the religious people and to the Gentiles. They're going to condemn him to death unjustly. They're going to deliver him over. They're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He's going to die. And then after three days, he's going to rise again. So what Jesus says here is clear, it's detailed, and it is compelling. And as we seek to try to understand and explain Jesus, this little section of the story helps us to see that Jesus himself was very clear about what his own mission was. He was very self-aware of what he came to do. And Mark makes it very clear as well. Jesus came in order to die. Now, there's a lot of noise in our world, in Western culture, about who Jesus was and why Jesus came. You might have your own ideas about who Jesus was and why Jesus came. And generally, the way people view Jesus and his purpose is filtered through what's most important to them. So very politically interested people will also often say, well, Jesus was a political revolutionary. Or people that want social change will say, Jesus was one who came to change the patterns of society and to bring justice and peace for the poor. And those things are, in some senses, true. Some will say that Jesus came to be a spiritual guide or mentor and help us in our own spiritual lives. Now, there might be an element of truth in all of those things. But if you want to know what Jesus himself thought about who he was, and if what Jesus himself thought about his mission, then you should look at the scripture, the original story of Jesus. And it's very clear here that Jesus himself says that the main reason he came was to die. His mission was to be a sacrifice. He saw himself primarily as one who came to give himself as a ransom for many, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, one of the things that we can understand and believe about God based on this first point that Jesus came to die is this. Okay, so listen. 
in the resolute and determined face of Jesus in this story, we can see, you can see and I can see that God is determined to rescue you. That is what the real God is like. He is resolutely committed to righting the wrongs of your life. He is committed to helping you. He is determined to act powerfully to save you. And he asks you through the gospel to believe that about him. And so the question that the gospel as the living and active word of God is pressing on you this morning, friend, is do you see that? Do you believe that? The real God shows himself here in the determination of Jesus, in the look on his face. You see that God cares about you, that God is determined to help you. And you know what? That should bring you comfort when the almighty maker of the universe is determined to rescue you out of bondage and out of death. You should be comforted by that. That's a thing we can hope in. God is invested in you. God loves you. We see that in the fact that Jesus came to die. Secondly, Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people. Verse 35. So Jesus has just said, I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to get spit on. I'm going to get beaten Delivered over to die unjustly. It's going to be a a travesty of the legal system in ancient Rome and ancient Israel. And the disciples hear this. And all through Mark, the disciples are presented as the foils of Jesus. You know, the people whose ignorance makes Jesus' wisdom that much greater. And look at what the disciples respond here. In verse 35, two of them, James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus immediately after he has said this. And they say this incredibly blind lack of self-awareness statement, right? Teacher, listen, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, I don't ask, I don't say that to anyone. I might want to say that to some people, but I don't say that to anyone, much less Jesus, God, this guy that you've seen walk on water, James and John, I mean, they're called the sons of thunder for a reason. They're bold. They come straight up to him. God, listen, um, I want you to do whatever I, I ask you to do for me. It's obviously an, a stunning lack of self-awareness on display here. I mean, think about this. Think about it this way. Husbands, I mean, I have to use husbands and not the ladies for this illustration because it fits with our experience. Okay, husbands, imagine your wife comes, you're sitting watching a football game or whatever. Your wife comes up to you and says, can you turn the TV off for a second, honey? So you, instead of turning it off, you just mute it. You've got one eye on the TV, one eye on your wife. And she says, honey, I've got terrible news. And she's, you know, she can barely get it out tears in her eyes. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Or I've, I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's a shock. I didn't expect this at all. I feel perfectly healthy. And, and the doctor says I have three months to live. Three months. And the husband responds by saying, that's too bad. You know what I really want though is some Taco Bell. Would you go get me some? And then on the way back, will you get me a six-pack because I just ran out of beer and it's only half time? Could you do that? Thanks. I'll talk to you later. That's akin to what the disciples are doing here to Jesus. He just told them. Do you see the pathos of the scene? He just told them. I'm about to die. These grievous, horrible words. And James and John come up and say, hey, that's great. Can you do whatever we ask, please? And Jesus responds unbelievably by saying, What do you want me to do for you? I mean, how would you have responded? How dare you? Get out of here. I am sick and tired. You don't understand anything. 
why don't you stop off at the next village and put yourself in the lake? I'm going to keep going to Jerusalem. That's what I would have done. That's probably what you would have done, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He puts up with their ridiculousness, and then they say, they go forward. I mean, they're not done yet. They don't get it. They have no social awareness. Verse 37, here's what we want. Grant us to sit, one on your right hand, one at your left hand in your glory. In other words, I want John to be the prime minister, and James, I'm going to be the secretary of state, right? We want to be number two and number three, or really 2A and 2B when you come into your kingdom. They're thinking Jesus is going down to Jerusalem. He's going to take over. The kingdom of God is going to come. He's going to throw out the Romans. We need to start politicking now. We need to get prime positions. We need him to hand out favors because he is going to win the election, right? That's the way they're thinking about Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, you have no idea. You have no idea what you're asking. And then he asked this rhetorical question. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Now, those two terms, cup and baptism, are Old Testament images that refer to judgment. They refer to God's wrath. What Jesus is saying here is, do you think you can handle the judgment and the wrath that is coming on me in my death? And of course, by this point, we know what the disciples are going to say, right? What do they say? We got this. No problem. We are able, verse 39. You just want to drop your Bible and just, come on. We are able. Still, Jesus is patient. Well, you actually are going to suffer. That's what he says there in verse 40, 41. The cup I drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, that's going to happen to you. You're going to suffer for my sake, not in the same sense that I'm going to suffer, but for me to give what you want to sit at the right and the left hand is not for me to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus' response to them is just unbelievably gracious. They don't think they need Jesus at all, right? They think they have adequate resumes for the job of secretary of state in the kingdom of God, of prime minister in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 41, we see what's going on with the other 10 disciples. Imagine this in your minds. They're all walking on the road. Jesus is leading the way, and the 10 disciples see James and John walk up a little bit more quickly to get next to Jesus, and they're sitting here back thinking, what, what are those two doing? And we read that Mark tells us that they begin to be indignant. Now, that's a strong word. That's not like they just had a little hissy fit. That is irate. That's like super off the charts angry. That's like if 10 is super, super volcano angry, they're at 11. They're irate. They are indignant. They are super ticked. Why? Why are they so mad? Is it because they think, can you believe James and John can be that selfish? Can you believe these guys? How dare they talk to the master like that, especially after these words that he's just spoken to us? No. I, I hate to tell it to you, but no, that's not why they're mad. They're mad because James and John are better politicians than they are. They're mad because James and John got there first and asked the question of Jesus that all 12 of them wanted to ask. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Jesus in verse 42 addresses all 12 of them. He doesn't just address James and John. He addresses all of them. So the 10 disciples aren't like better than James and John or sort of have less moral issues here. They are stewing. They're foaming at the mouth. They're indignant. They're on fire angry. And the reason is because James and John got to Jesus first. And so Jesus calls them together and explains what we're going to look at in a minute, that it means greatness means to serve and not to be served. But what I want to do now, just pause for a second and help you see here, it's pretty clear, right, that the disciples are spiritually insensitive. They're they're hard-hearted. 
they're selfish, they're vain. I mean, all that's very clear. But listen, God does not want you to read Mark chapter 10 and think, gosh, those disciples, I cannot believe those guys. How dare they get that irate at Jesus? God doesn't want you just to respond to the scripture that way because as I've said before, the Bible isn't just a window into an ancient world and into other people's hearts, although it is that. The Bible is also a mirror. It's a mirror of our own hearts. And friends, listen, the truth of the matter is this. What you see here in the disciples' behavior, attitude, and actions is a reflection of what each one of us is like deep down. Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people like James and like John and like the other 10 and like you and like me. If you want to get Jesus, you've got to get this. We are that selfish. We do do, that sounded bad. We do the things that the disciples do here. Just be honest with yourself for a second. Let the truth of what you were really like come to the surface through the story and have the courage to face yourself honestly, okay? Think about a few examples. Let me just give you some. For you kids, you young folks, when mom or dad, you know, comes home with a surprise or with a present for just one of the kids and not all three or all 12 or all 20, what is your typical first response? I'm so glad for you, Joey. No, come on. It's, where's mine? Don't I deserve that too? Why does Sally always get to have all the fun stuff? When you, uh, when you hear good news from a friend or from a family member, do, you, do we not at times, I'll say we because I'm the same way, do we not at times react inwardly with a thought like, you know, why can't anything good like that ever happen to me? I want a baby. I want a promotion. I want to be able to move to that city. I want to take that trip. When you gain a position of authority or power at work, say, don't you often consider first how you can use that position to further your own interests? Um, when, you, when you act this way towards God, too, you know, um, we really want God to answer our prayers and to meet our needs and take away the hard things in our lives right when we ask, but we grumble and complain about obedience to his will and loving our neighbors more than we love ourselves. You know, even when we help other people and give away things to charities and do time serving, often we do those things so that we can be seen by others and by ourselves as kind and charitable and generous people and not out of love for God. All of us are like the disciples. That's the idea. The inner selfishness that infects every single one of us creates all kinds of ruin in our lives. The inner selfishness that the disciples show here and that we show in our lives, that inner selfishness makes us conniving and jealous and impatient and ungrateful and close-minded jerks. It makes us bitter. It makes us deceitful. It makes us not open up to others with love, but condemn them in our hearts. It creates decay. It creates terrible habits. It creates wickedness. And here's the point. Listen, God knows that. God knows that this is how we think. He knows that this is how we are, just like the disciples. And that is why Jesus came to rescue selfish people. God is not like us. 
He does not revert to his own interests first. If he were like that, if he were like us, we would all be in trouble. No, that's not what God does. God gives himself selflessly so that selfish people like me can be rescued from ourselves. Let's look at that thirdly. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people like the disciples and like every one of us. Jesus came to die in order to rescue selfish people by sacrificing himself for them. Verse 42, Jesus calls all the disciples to him. And he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? They act like you guys are acting. And their great ones exercise authority over them. They treat them like slaves, like crud, right? But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus says, don't act like the world does. True love consists in sacrificial service. True greatness consists in giving yourself for someone else, not in using your power and your authority for selfish purposes. And then Jesus tells them, most importantly, that he, he is the great example of this kind of sacrificial service. In fact, that is why he came, verse 45, for purpose clause. For, or in other words, for this reason, here is why the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, not to act like James and John act and the disciples act and you act and I act. No, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And what does that service consist of? It consists of him giving his life as a ransom, as a ransom for many. In Jesus' own sacrificial death at the cross, he is acting as a ransom. Now, that's a very important word. It helps summarize what all of Christianity is about. The word means a payment used to secure someone from bondage, to rescue someone out of bondage. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he is going to die in order to rescue us from our own selfishness and its consequences. He came to die, to rescue us for our, out of our own selfishness and its consequences. Jesus is going to selflessly sacrifice himself for selfish people like you and me. Our selfishness, according to the truth of God's word and according to our experience, our selfishness has consequences. I just talked about a few of them, you know. It brings ruin. It brings despair. It brings pain. And Jesus is saying that he pays for all of that in his own sacrifice for us. Jesus takes our place. He bears in his death all of our selfishness and rescues us from its terrible consequences. And he does this by doing the most selfless thing possible, by offering his own life. Jesus' sacrificial death for us rescues us from the endless, destructive cycle of our own selfish hearts. Remember what we said at the beginning. All true love consists in sacrificial service. That is what Jesus is saying that he came to do. He came to sacrificially serve you by dying for you. That is how much he loves When you acted selfishly towards him, he selflessly died for you. That is what we call grace. It's you getting the opposite of what you deserve. You didn't deserve or earn his death for you. He willingly 
gives himself for your good and for your blessing of his own initiative. And listen, only when you see the love of God for you in Jesus displayed at the cross can you begin to be a little bit less selfish in your own life. Only when you begin to understand what Jesus has given up for your sake can you begin to be empowered to begin to act selflessly and lovingly and giving of yourself for other people. Only when you believe and rest in his sacrificial ransoming love can you begin to offer yourself really as a servant for others. So you can truly be happy when others receive blessings instead of secretly hating them in your hearts because you are secure in the blessing that God has given you in Jesus. So you can really serve and love other people with pure motives and not with selfish motives because you don't need the security that selfishness offers but never actually gives because God has given you real security through the forgiveness he offers in Jesus' death. So you can really use your authority or your position or your power to care for and to empower other people to flourish because you are so cognizant and aware of how God in Jesus used his power to serve and care for you. You see, when you understand and are resting more and more in the grace of the gospel, in Jesus's selfless love for you, in his ransoming you at the cross, then you begin to experience change. You begin to live selflessly, and ironically, when you begin to live selflessly, you actually begin to have the fulfillment that your selfish living never really gives. Remember at the beginning I said that what makes stories great is how they all in some ways display self-sacrifice as the essence of love. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's really what the gospel is about. Back to Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter, Harry Potter's mother's love for him, Lily Potter's love for Harry was the example that I used. And if you know... Spoiler alert, right? If you know how Harry Potter ends or towards the end of the story, I'll try to not spoil it too badly. Um, You know that his mother's love for him inspired him later in his life to sacrifice for others as well. You know, that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming on the cross and ransoming himself, that's what the gospel does. When we see by faith the self-sacrificing love that Jesus has for us, we begin to show self-sacrificing love for others. The wonder of the gospel is that it's the only thing that can really change you. It's the only thing that from the inside out will make you a new person. So let me ask you this, and then we're done. Do you see Jesus rightly? As the one who came to die to rescue selfish people like you and like me by sacrificing himself for you. When you can see that, when you can rest in that, when you can rejoice in that news, over time, God will work change in your life. Over time, you will flourish more by giving of yourself than you've ever flourished by wanting others to give to you. May it be the case with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.